Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. It's been more than 30 years since the five Central Asian states became independent, yet the term Russia's backyard is often still used by some people, including Western media, when reporting on the Central Asian region. Understandably, many in Central Asia find this way of describing their region offensive. Yet Russia remains a neighbor and a country with unique influence in Central Asia. How far has Central Asia come in being independent from Russia, and what are some of the ties that still bind the region to its former colonizer? To discuss all this, I am joined by Johan Engvall, an analyst at Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies, which is based at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And I'll mention here, too, at the start that Johan is also the author of a book on Kyrgyzstan titled The State as Investment Market, which I happen to have an autograph, autographed copy of. Thank you very much. Uh, Nabahar Imamova, veteran correspondent for Uzbek service at Voice of America, and Timur Umarov, a fellow at Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center in Berlin. Thank you all for joining me. Nabahar, let me start with you. Russia's backyard. What, you know, what's wrong with this term? What is it that when you hear that term, what, what makes, what's your response? Well, hello, everyone. Always happy to be on your program, uh, Bruce, and honored to be in the company of such brilliant experts. So happy. Uh, as you know, my views do not represent Voice of America. I'm here to share uh, my findings as a reporter and my observations, both in Central Asia and in the West. You know, people don't um, often remember what they hear and what they see, but they will never forget how you make them feel. So the the, the feelings toward um, Russia uh, or the discussion of Russia is really one of those uh, moments when your country, your region is described by strangers, let's say by the foreign media, as someone else's backyard, and especially of a stronger country with an oppressive colonial history like that of Russia, many simply hate the sound of it. And, uh, you know, I've, I, especially lately, I hear that a lot. They, and they question the West. Uh, they say, okay, if you respect us, if you want us, if you want to see us as independent um, and, as, as you claim us to be and support our sovereignty and territorial integrity, why are you defining us that way? They don't necessarily see the difference between what the foreign uh, you know, media uh, say, say and what the foreign governments you know, claim. So they kind of mix it together uh, and they question this, uh, this attitude. So the semantics here really matter. They touch the nerve. But if you are also to passionately argue then, Bruce, about how independent and sovereign um, your nation is, then you must also present an alternative picture, a vision about where things are headed. And by this, I'm really addressing the the, the leaderships, uh, you know, in the region. There, I observe that they really uh, fail at this. They Presidents constantly give speeches urging people to be the kind of patriots their country um, need and, uh, you know, support their reforms, their agenda, to believe in this uh, great future they're promising. They try to make cases that they're leading uh, their people towards a just and prosperous society without really under, you know, the kind of societies that are truly independent and do not are not considered to be by anybody's assets or, or backyard. But they almost never discuss the challenges. And because the challenges are not discussed openly, especially, let's say, the pressure by the Kremlin, people are left to make their own 
analysis and conclusions. So, you know, for that to happen, obviously, Central Asian presidents must express critical views of Moscow that they try not to. Uh, they need to disclose some of the, uh, you know, pressures they face from the Kremlin and be able to answer the questions from the, the public. Basically, openly discuss your relationship with, with Russia, which, as we observe, none of the states, none of the governments in uh, Central Asia want to. And since they avoid confronting media, as we know, and governments are constantly trying to dismantle any, you know, critical voices, it's hard. So, you know, the region, for the region to be able to really see itself as independent uh, and, and free, it needs those kinds of leaders. We see that more clearly now. Presidents who truly represent that spirit, that spirit that, hey, we're not a Russian backyard. We're nobody's vassal. We are truly independent. Otherwise, I'm afraid that that cynicism about these leaders being um, the extensions of the Kremlin will remain uh, widespread. And, and you, you know, we we're yet to hear a compelling argument from a leader in the region, Bruce, about why his country is not a Russian backyard. As much as the public sort of disdains and resents this kind of uh, you know definition by the outsiders, it's true we see more confident governments, more assertive leaderships, proactive diplomacy. Uh, these states are, are better at gauging now, strategizing, balancing, uh, and when they speak up, actually they seem to have gotten better at explaining their policies and they, they will claim that they're open to work with everyone. But and I would also add that despite living under these, you know, authoritarian regimes, lacking free media and vibrant civil society, Central Asia is quite varied when it comes to perspectives and outlooks. The region, I would argue, is more connected uh, to the world than ever. It's increasingly global, increasingly Islamic, increasingly polarized, despite these assorted, you know, outlooks. There is also a shaping public discourse on uh, pressing issues. There is a court of public opinion that is slowly shaping. There you have some vigorous discussions, at least on social media and on some, you know, on few journalism platforms about where things are headed. And I will, I will go back to my initial point that Central Asians today care more about how they feel than what others say about them. I mean, something that I, you know, as a reporter, consider to be a progress, the governments may, may be wasting millions of dollars, you know, to promote the country's images. But many do realize today in the region that unless the reality changes on the ground, that paid publicity doesn't deliver anything substantive. So, you know, and I will also add that the war on, uh, you know, in Ukraine uh, has been a reality check on Russia. I mean, we can, you know, go deeper in this, but I'll stop here. I'm just, you know, by, by saying that the response to this, you know, Russia uh, Central Asia being Russia's backyard is really nuanced and it's very complex. So we can't really, I mean, I'm not going to say that people, people hate and love these, uh, you know, Russia in general, uh, but the attitudes are really colorful and diverse. Okay. Thank you. And we are going to get to some of those other topics about Russian ties in just a minute too, but uh, I want to go to Johan here for a second. Johan, recently in uh, one of your works, your papers, um, you'd mentioned that there's also a generational uh, aspect at, at play in this too, that uh, now we, you know, we are 32 years past uh, of independence. Um, there's, so there's a huge section of these populations that have never lived under the Soviet Union or don't remember what that was like. How much of a factor is that in, in the decoupling from Russia? 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, and thank you for, for the invitation to, to the show. I'm really appreciating it. Yeah, I mean, this is um, something that I think you have to also consider, you know, this how these societies are changing. Uh, I mean, there are several factors, I think, that contributes here. I mean, first of all, it's, as you mentioned, uh, 22 years now that has passed since these countries became independent. Yeah. And um, so in a way, you can say there that, you know, after 70 years of, you know, uniformity <laughs> under the Soviet uh, rule, they are really becoming themselves in that sense. They they find their own, you know, political path, but also, you know, develop their distinct uh, national identities and, and um, you know try to protect their, their sovereignty so so and you also see that in this sense the russian culture has has lost its its former dominant rule uh, role here in, in in the the region even if it's still there uh, but then i think that you also see that things are changing even even though i wouldn't say that maybe russian aggression against ukraine has maybe not dramatically or abruptly shifted the, the, the relationship between the Central Asian states and, and Russia. But it is rather, I think, accelerated these long-term trends that we have seen. And and it's also been given some impetus here to, to at least some cautious uh, re-examination here of the colonial legacy in Central Asia as well. We see that wider sections of the public now even discussing this, even in countries like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, which had never really uh, paid attention to this or built their state on on any kind of anti-colonial foundation. And you also see it in Uzbekistan. President uh, Mirziyoyev is increasingly vocal in a way or mentioning the injustices suffered by the Uzbek people during the Soviet era, for instance. But but to come back to this that you mentioned, I think that this generational shift is really a thread running through these uh, changes changes here. I mean, uh, the region is, is going through very rapid societal and, and demographic changes. And that also, of course, has a strong impact on identity formation. And we should also remember that compared to many other of these uh, regions or countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, the population here in Central Asia is much younger. More, more than 70% of the population is under 40 years of age. So you have this large post-Soviet generation without really actual, actual personal exist, experience here of the, of the Soviet Union that are now, now emerging on a broader front. Um, so, so and, and of course, the, this generation then has been sh- shaped by development since independence, and they are of course changing these countries both politically and, and culturally. And I, I think this is this generation, especially among lower and middle classes, is also you can see more nationalist than previous generations. And with that, I think also comes this you know aspects of you know you try to rediscover your history and traditions and things like that. So, so I think that um, for them, you know, things that were taboo for their parents uh, that were raised in the Soviet system, it's it's will be natural here. Um, so I would say that, it, and the relation, of course, Russia still still has influence on this, and and and, um, but I think that Russia's appeal here now is among younger generation is less ideological and or sentimental for that matter, uh, but it's more related, I think, to. Russia's, you know, Russia is seen as a maybe a source of employment or, you know, a source of material opportunities and things like that. So there are 
changing um, aspects here very much. But uh, and of course, Russia is hypersensitive about these developments, and and of course, constantly takes steps to try to reverse or sabotage these processes. Maybe we'll come to that later. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you, um, Tamar. Let me bring you in here, and I want to I want to continue a little bit about this colonial discussion. First of all, what I want to ask you is, what's your sense of who's discussing this? I mean, where is this debate being had in, among Central Asian societies and the governments? And and why am I posing the question like this? Because I, I mean, I've seen some people argue that the, this debate about the colonial history in Central Asia is mostly being carried on by the by the educated elite and and younger people. Is that your sense of, of what's going on? And also. Past that, you know, what, what does it say about some of the government responses that are still kind of muted? Kazakhs, the Kazakh government will will acknowledge the famine of the early 1930s without specifically mentioning Russia. Uh, President uh, Uzbek President Mirzioyev, of course, has uh, done much to rehabilitate the Jadists and the Basmachi without actually mentioning Russia. So if you can kind of take it both those things, what what at what level of society is the colonial history being revisited in Central Asia? And then what about the government's actions, which show that they're also dealing with the colonial legacy of the country, but without mentioning Russia? Yes, Bruce, thank you for having me. I think the the way Central Asian countries became independent didn't leave a space for the first generation of uh, political elites and political leaderships in all five Central Asian countries to take decolonial discourse as the main basis of their legitimacy. And uh, because of that, um, and also because all of those new leaders in independent countries were basically, uh, you know, the people who were in power during Soviet times, and most of, I mean, all of them were Soviet people, I think for them, it was uh, kind of difficult to talk about um, decolonial narratives as if uh, it will be something that will collect a lot of uh, popularity around their personas. That is why I think in the first two decades, we've been observing mostly continuation of um, Soviet um, tools being implemented in um, national building or in language policies or, uh, you know, any anything related to the ideology would remind very much um, Soviet techniques with some adjustments that have been made by the leaders. And of course, the situation differed from one country to another. Um, I think Uzbekistan stand out of the uh, picture in a way Uzbekistan dealt with the language policy and got rid of um, Cyrillic alphabet right away and um, started to seek for new um, sources of identity for the population, but the majority of political elites were basically continuing what they were used to during Soviet times. And at the moment, we are living in a time where we have the um, second generation of uh, political leadership coming to power in um, Central Asian countries. Um, although in, in Turkmenistan, for example, this process happened earlier uh, with uh, Gurbanguly Birdumuhamedov coming to power uh, more than 15 years ago. And he uh, was already the person who didn't start his political career 
during Soviet times, but already did it in the independent times. In Kyrgyzstan, Sadr Japarov is the first one um, who also became politician in already independent um, Kyrgyzstan. In Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, we still have politicians as a rulers who um, have been around um, since uh, Soviet times, but unlike their predecessors, unlike Nazarbayev and Karimov, uh, they were not on the top of uh, the um, hierarchy. And because of that, these are different people and they see the opportunities to get popularity among the society and, and they see different sources for it. That is why uh, they're not against of um, using decolonial narratives um, to base their own legitimacy upon it. And um, especially right now when uh, we are living in time where um, Russia is trying to go back in time and say that actually um, Soviet, Uni Soviet Union was a, was a great entity and we should not um, remember Soviet times as um, something colonial or something that uh, is evil, uh, but we should look at it as a um, kind of role model. Um, of course, uh, when you live in this narrative and when you live with a neighbor who wants to put everything on pause and kind of uh, make you degrade um, in a way that you will be forever stuck in Soviet Union, the politicians understand that uh, decolonial narratives will find people who uh, who will find it attractive and that is why they use it. So I would say it's both. On the one hand, this is something that is more natural for the exact political leaderships in different Central Asian countries. And at the same time, this is a pragmatic way to be uh, relevant. Okay, great. Thank you. And I'll ask this question for all of you, but I'll start with Johan. Which, which of the five Central Asian countries do you think has been uh, most successful at, at moving, distancing themselves from Russia at, since Russia launched its full-scale war in Ukraine? Oh, uh, difficult question. <laughs> uh, maybe I, I would say probably, uh, in a way, uh, Turkmenistan is always on the side, so <laughs> there you can... <laughs> it's difficult to even, even count them, but I would say it probably is in a different ways, probably between uh, Kazakhstan and, and Uzbekistan. Of course, they are the strongest states here they have emerged really as more of what's called middle powers here in a way the regional powers within the region so of course they have better abilities in a way but on the other hand they are also of course the most important so they are often also coming under most pressure also in a way from Russia but I would say would say that you know in a way the most surprising I would say is the the strong position of, of, of uh, Kazakhstan in a sense which um, which not is seen seen in light of the the unrest there uh, in in 2022 just before there in January with the employment of, of the CSTO and so but um, yeah and uh, so, so considering that I would say that the, the the quite clear stance here from from Kazakhstan has been been uh, Standing out in a sense. I remember, for instance, in Saint Petersburg, there when um, last year when President Tokayev even said to to a Russian audience there that Kazakhstan 
will not rec- recognize uh, you know fake states uh, in eastern U- ukraine here so and uh, i think this is the only case of a leader in the region but also if you look a little bit wider here saying this in in putin's presence here uh, and you can also see that uzbekistan was quite early also defending ukraine's right to its territory including crimea and, and all that uh, but you can see of course that as a result of this um, disapproval if you want of, of the war here from kazakhstan side it's also been the target of repeated here say outbursts from russian politicians journalists various kind of uh, commentators in the media there although not from the official kremlin but 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 still from these really you know questioning kazakhstan's right to to the northern parts of the country and things like that so a media campaign here you can you can talk about that puts it of course in an uncomfortable spot but 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 still you can also see that the, all of these activities that uh, Tokayev have been very active in 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 uh, both when it comes to the economic uh, initiatives both old and new that are now really coming out here from from Kazakhstan for instance to try to diversify and and really building relations with 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 other actors here so I would say that in that sense, Kazakhstan has been maybe the most profiled in a way, while Uzbekistan, they are doing it maybe in a more muted way, but, but are still at least privately very clear what they think about, about the situation, uh, what, what Russia is doing in, in Ukraine, I would say. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, Dabahar, I'll give the question to you, the same question to you. And, and I noticed, uh, I remember you mentioned in your article um, that Takayev, of course, had spoken Kazakh when Putin, during Putin's most recent visit. And we all saw the videos of Kremlin, uh, Putin's officials scrambling for their headsets so they could get the translation. Was, yeah. that, was that really an act of independence on the part of Takayev, a message? Well, it was definitely seen as as a daring uh, step, that is for sure. I mean, I agree with Johan, you know, all eyes have been on Kazakhstan because Kazakhstan is Russia's immediate neighbor. It has the longest border. It has a large, uh, you know, Russian-speaking population. So its actions has been analyzed from a very, you know, unique perspective. Uh, And and I think Uzbeks would also claim that they've been more daring uh, because, you know, Moscow has not been able to convince them to join, uh, you know, to become the permanent members of its led uh, blocks, right? The uh, Eurasian Economic Union and then the, the CSTO. So I think you have Astana and Tashkent both uh, trying their best uh, to speak, uh, you know, to speak up uh, when it comes to uh, the Russian pressure. But I think it's, again, it's more nuanced. And I want to go back to what you asked from Timur um, earlier to respond to this question as well, that, you know, Central Asian states, just like other former Soviet parts, are more aware of Russia's strength and weaknesses, you know, the extent of its military might and economic might, uh, which sometimes they find actually relieving, you know. They have a better understanding of how Russia uh, works, how its blocks work, for example. And then there is this anti-Russian sentiment, anti-Kremlin sentiment on the rise not as not just uh, you know in in, the, in among the people but within the political establishments as well and and in many ways the way these uh, governments have been responding do represent the, the the public views you know whether they really take into account the public opinion or or, or not that's a different matter um, to discuss but you will find enough ukrainian supporters you will find enough russian supporters you'll find enough pro russians and pro westerns within the political establishment. So, you know, they're not 
the the ruling elite is kind of quite you know diverse as i said earlier when it comes to the to the discussions of of russia but there are i find that there are four you know roughly four schools of thought uh, towards Russia, even within the political establishments, when when you really kind of dive in deeper. So, you know, there's this first group that basically says, we're not Russia's backyard or its subject in any way, but we can't change the geography. And whether we like it or not, we got to be friends with Russia. We got to, we, we, we will be an ally of Russia on mutual interests, and we don't apologize for that. They favor transactional relationships with Moscow. They believe that their country, uh, you know, ha- can have balanced and strong relationships, both with with Moscow and other, you know, major players. And I've even heard this from some in Tajikistan and Turkmenistan that their countries can handle those kinds of uh, relationships. And some in this contingent also argue that everything that makes their country dependent on Russia also makes Russia dependent on them, which is also an interesting, you know, argument that they they see this mutual leverage, um, you know, starting from the security relationship all the way to education. For them, Russia needs Central Asia as much, you know, to to prosper and to overcome its current challenges as an isolated uh, system because of the war in Ukraine. And then there is the second school of thought vis-a-vis Russia, which insists that it is time to stop calling Russia a brother. They really resent that notion. They they think think that it is time to live off the Soviet legacy and push back aggressively and when necessary against the Kremlin control, uh, you know, uh, through political channels, economic and cultural means. They say, uh, and those were the ones who were really cheer, uh, cheering Takayev recently when he was speaking in, in Kazakh, although briefly, you know, in the presence of Russian delegation, they say, let's be proud Kazakhs and Uzbeks, and let's be proud, you know, Kyrgyz and Tajik and Turkmen, you know, with Russia, instead of still trying to be a Russia-influenced um, Central Asians. This group also, in, you know, sees the sees current leaderships as Moscow's extensions. And so it's also a, quite a colorful group. And um, they, they see, despite the recent assertions, of course, and notable courage to push back from Takayev and, you know, sometimes from Mirziyoyev, even, even from Rahman, uh, they see current presidents in Central Asia as admiring Putin and following what they call his political, you know, technology, uh, controlling media, using media for its, you know, for their state propaganda. I would also put reform-minded Central Asians into this contingent who advocate that real reforms is a way to overcome Russian pressure. But at the same time, real reforms could really scare Russia and position Russia against them. Then there is this, you know, third school of thought, which is even more uh, pragmatic and realistic, I would say, than the first one. People in this group do not believe that the region is capable of moving away from Russia that impossible politically, economically, and culturally, and, you know, see what happened in Ukraine, they ask, and they also say, why? Why should we really distance ourselves from Russia? We don't have to. And I have heard this from, you know, both Kazakh and Uzbek and Kyrgyz officials. They they see that this 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 even notion, you know, Central Asia being a Russian backyard is nonsense. Uh, who cares? You know, they say we're inseparable anyways, even when the leaders uh, change. They see the ties as resilient and sturdy and multi 
multifaceted. And this group also includes people who are against liberal democracy ideas and, and democratic reforms. Then we have the fourth group who simply do not have strong feelings towards Russia. Uh, these people don't love or hate Russia, as I said earlier. They don't know much about Russia and other than just basic facts. Uh, for them, not knowing Russian as a language is normal. Uh, Russian is just foreign for them. And many in this group, I would say, include that majority that Johan also mentioned earlier, the majority under the age of 40 in the, in the region. They don't relate to Russia from a historic perspective or educational. This is truly a post-independent generation. And I've heard I've heard people with these kind of attitudes and perspectives in every field, in the government, in NGOs, businesses, people, you know, representing different sectors. Some are just ordinary folks, professionals, religious uh, Central Asians, liberals, conservatives. Overall, I would say the discussion of Russia is more relaxed now in the region than before. I would also argue that critical views are more tolerated relatively. And then this decolonization discussion, which is slowly brewing, is really interesting. And I've seen that in even in, in schools, you know, for example, in Uzbekistan, that people are more comfortable discussing their attitudes um, or, and, and anti-Russian sentiments, for example. Okay, thank you. Uh, Timur, I want to give you a chance to respond to this too, but I, I'm also curious, about, you know, Johan had mentioned Turkmenistan right at the start. You don't usually think of Turkmenistan when you're thinking of who's uh, propped up their own sovereignty and and in uh and independence after Russia started this war in Ukraine. Um, but, but you know, Turkmenistan, maybe just because it was isolationist, actually is kind of developing partnerships with Turkey and uh, with other countries at the moment that it wasn't developing before. So what do you think? Who's Who's been most effective at uh, solidifying their sovereignty since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine? I would rather turn this question to a different direction. I think different countries are in different situation when it comes to uh, pressure from Russia or when it comes to their relationship with uh, Moscow and with the Kremlin. And because of the different situations that they are in, they act differently. I mean, in all countries throughout the world, the political elites, whether it's, um, you know, the democracy or autocratic political regime uh, elites want, uh, you know, to preserve their um, privileged positions in the societies. And Central Asia is not an exception. The, these um, countries and political groups uh, inside them want, uh, you know, to pres preserve their um, stability of their um, regimes. Um, and, and that is why they understand that for, for reaching that, on the one hand, they need to have good relationship with Russia, which will not be a relationship where Russia is uh, dominant in every single sphere and you're super dependent. For that, you need diversified ties with the outside world except for Russia, uh, whether it's China, Turkey, the Gulf um, states, or um, you know the West collectively, and and um, you know every every country realizes that its um, position is different. So Kazakhstan's uh, position is unique; it stand out, stands out because of the uh, border that it has with Russia, because of the um, ethnic Russians uh, uh, that are living on the northern part of Kazakhstan, uh, because of the 
this neighborhood it, it just becomes uh, very very dangerous uh, with years Russia has proved already for the third time how it can be aggressive towards its neighbor when it doesn't like uh, the neighbor's domestic politics and um, because of that Kazakhstan uh, you know simply cannot approve of what Russia is doing because automatically it will mean that Kazakhstan might theoretically approve anything um, that Russia might in the future do towards its its own sovereignty um, and that, that because of that I think Kazakhstan um, tries very hard to make it clear that Kazakhstan is not supporting Russia's um, aggression and even tries to criticize um, it um, in, in, a, in a way. Other countries feel more relaxed in a way, but also uh, the history of how they developed in the independent period um, set different limits to Russia's presence there. For example, um, Turkmenistan, as you rightly uh, said, um, from the very beginning was very isolated. It's um, really a North Korea in Central Asia without a nuclear bomb. And um, because of that, they um, really uh, cut off um, all of the, um, you know, potential influences of outside players inside the country, so that uh, the government has a full control of what kind of information people consume and uh, with whom they talk and who comes to the country and what companies operating, what are organizations um, are welcomed and which organizations are not welcomed. And, and this neutrality, uh, on, on the one hand, uh, allowed the regime to keep the control over the society, but at the same time, it allowed to have this distance with uh, Russia and together with Russia, with um, many other countries around the world. Uzbekistan was also uh, situated comfortably inside Central Asia, in the very center of it, without a mutual border with Russia, which gave Uzbekistan from the very beginning a kind of more freedom of maneuver, um, unlike Kazakhstan would have. That is why Uzbekistan today is not part of Russia's integration projects, or it, it cannot be perceived as... Uh, Russia's greatest ally, considering how bumpy the relationship were in the last three decades. So it, it gave um, Uzbekistan and, and continues to give to even today um, more more freedom when it comes to relationship with Russia. So um, yeah, I would, I would rather say that everyone has their own um, situation. And because of that, um, everyone acts differently. But uh, what unites everybody is that everybody is pragmatic and everybody wants uh, the best for themselves. Great. Thank you. Um, a reminder, we're talking about the use of the term Russia's backyard, and we're looking at how the Central Asian states uh, are or are not uh, close and dependent upon Russia in the wake of Russia's invasion, full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And my guests are Nabahari Mamaba, veteran correspondent for the Uzbek service at Voice of America, Timur Amarov, a fellow at the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center in Berlin, and Johan Engwall, an analyst at the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies, which is based at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to come back to you. You know, you've been very objective in your your paper, papers on Russian Central Asian relations, and and you brought up the fact that actually Russia is paying more attention to Central Asia. Uh, than they ever have, than certainly in the years since the Soviet Union fell apart, and that there are some 
there are some aspects of Russia that that will always remain. But um, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, Russia's really made a big effort to try to uh, up its, um, if not influence, certainly its presence in Central Asia since uh, February 2022. Yes, definitely. I think um, what has changed in the last couple of years um, amidst the war in Ukraine is Russia's position around the world and Russia's position in Central Asia um, as a, a part of the world where um, Russia is present very actively and in many um, different dimensions. Um, but uh, uh, what changed is that Moscow didn't, uh, no, Moscow is no longer um, welcomed in uh, many uh, places where it was welcomed before. And, um, you know, it doesn't really have a lot of places where um, its president can, can visit or the regions that are uh, welcoming Russia's um, investment or um, having uh, continuing their um, normal trade relationship, business relationship. And uh, Central Asia here uh, would be this particular part of the world that uh, continues to be there and uh, didn't turn its back on Russia. And in a way for Russia, uh, there are not many options on the table. And that is why I think those resources, the, the energy that uh, Russia's uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, has the uh, uh, businesses uh, capacity to go abroad they are in the last two years have been focusing on the regions that are still available and we see um, how the politicians are uh, visiting Central Asian countries uh, uh, from from Russia uh, we see how businesses are thinking about opening or some of them are opening their offices in Central Asia. And uh, this is a process uh, that, you know, will will not uh, stop in the nearest future, considering that, uh, you know, the sanctions are here to stay. Um, apart from that, for the first time in history, we saw a migration wave from Russia to Central Asia, uh, which actually also leads to a, a more closed ties between the societies of uh, Central Asian countries and and Russia, even though this flow of migrants wasn't, it, it didn't consist of people who um, support what Russia is doing or disapprove of uh, Russia's policies, but they are still uh, representatives of the Russian societies and with the with this experience and with these new connections that they created and with this new knowledge, I think they also contribute to the future of the relationship between um, Central Asian states and Russia. And, you know, also inside Russia, I think a lot of uh, attention right now is being paid to Central Asia, considering that whether inside of Russia um, you have those groups uh, that are pro-war or against the war, um, everyone tries to find a, a the, the um, examples of that will 
kind of help them um, support their argument um, saying that uh, Russia's foreign policy is being welcomed around the world or not being welcomed. And uh, because of that, they pick and choose different examples that are coming from Central Asia. Um, and also, you know, um, overall people in Russia who are still living in a, in a times where uh, there is a risk of uh, potential mobilization, they right now, I think, have uh, Central Asia as a potential plan B for their uh, future. So in a way, we, we've seen how Central Asia, you know, uh, with the war in Ukraine, alienated Uh, from Russia, but at the same time, we see how on different spheres, uh, the region and Russia have become closer. So everything is much more nuanced and, uh, uh, you know, not black and white as it might seem on the surface. Hey, great. Thank you. Nabahar, uh, Uzbekistan, we've talked about them distancing themselves somewhat from Russia, but at the same time, of course, uh, early on in Mirzioyev's presidency, he, he arranged a deal that uh, Uzbekistan is importing Russian oil. They recently, this year, started importing Russian natural gas, which never happened before. And Russia, certainly Ross Adam is making a huge pitch for Uzbekistan to use their services to build the nuclear power plant. One could argue that Russia has more influence in Uzbekistan now than it did just a couple of years ago. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? It does. It does. And you actually, despite the fact that Tashkent, you know, denies this, um, Russian Russia hand is still, uh, you know, um, uh, stronger um, when it comes, especially to the uh, to the energy sector. Uh, right now, we have another uh, energy crisis brewing um, across Uzbekistan, and of course, you know, the Mirziyoyev administration will deny that this is a this is a crisis. Last year, it uh, quietly, <laughs> I would say, blamed uh, the Kremlin for the difficulties, uh, energy, you know, shortages uh, in the country. I remember trying to push Uzbek officials to to talk about this and. They were, you know, privately saying that it's all Russian pressure. It's Russia is playing games with us. You know, Russia isn't really is really pushing us to this uh, into this uh, crisis. But then, as we know, the the energy uh, ministry, the, the Uzbek government made new deals uh, with Russia, and this year was supposed to be was expected to be easier. Uh, than before. But so far, I mean, the news hasn't been that good. And you have many, many Uzbeks asking every day, uh, you know, specifically on social media, where is that that gas that we've been, you know, we, we should be buying through through Kazakhstan? Where is it going? And how come we are still, you know, struggling with uh, with shortages? So I think here, I mean, the Mirziyoyev administration has a lot of work to do in terms of communicating what it is doing when with Russia, you know, when it comes to energy uh, issues um, to its own people. And of course, to, 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 to clarify so many other, uh, you know, questions that uh, pertain uh, to the uh, relationship. Another, you know, another interesting factor uh, that I hear, of course, this can also be argued as a mutual leverage. Uh, as I mentioned um, earlier, there's definitely a strong uh, long-term link with Russia uh, that people see, uh, you know, through labor, uh, through labor uh, migration, uh, businesses, and also increasing Muslim population, this new generation of Central Asians in Russia. And many Uzbeks relate to Russia through that uh, prism, especially labor migration. Um, every second or third household, I would argue, has a relationship with Russia. 
The government realizes this more than ever. Their livelihoods depend uh, on this country. So when you discuss these issues, so many uh, critical economic, uh, you know, factors uh, are mentioned by just the ordinary folks. Even I mean, I was having this conversation this summer in uh, in Rishton in Fergana uh, at a local uh, bazaar where people seemed to be happy with their you know summer harvest and and everything was going well as far as they were uh, they were telling me. But when I was asking. Uh, you know, some questions about how, like, let's say there are lots of constructions around Uzbekistan. People, uh, you know, people have more cars now. People have more property. And I'm always questioning, like, where where is this revenue from? You know, where are you getting this money to build this new, you know, bungalow? And it's usually you hear the word Russia. Russia is a very important factor in, in Uzbekistan. Uh, and, and, you know, people wish that there were more open uh, conversations about this, but I would also argue that the 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 the, the discourse is uh, more relaxed now. I mean, people do discuss these issues, even you know whether government likes it or not. And remember how in the earlier days of um, the Russian invasion, Bruce, uh, we saw uh, the Uzbek government and other neighboring countries also trying to censor, you know, restrict uh, the coverage of the war and analysis of the Russian aggression and you know the international, specifically Western response to it. I heard many officials then, you know. In Tashkent specifically, I was there who said, why should we jeopardize our relationship with Moscow? This is a critical relationship. This is not our war. We don't have to rush to express ourselves or pick a lane or even frame a narrative about the war, about the you know invasion of Ukraine. We just watch and what happens. They were that be, you know, they were being that careful. They're not as nervous anymore, as I find. And the media in Uzbekistan, and I would also argue across the region, are not necessarily actively covering the war, uh, but they're not ignoring it either. I mean, I have live hits with with Uzbek news outlets, you know, uh, at least a couple of times a month discussing Ukraine. I mean, Zelensky's visit to Washington recently, American aid to Ukraine. I mean, these are being discussed in the Uzbek media and they're more, I would say, you know, comfortable. Uh, and um, But it's true uh, and it continues that the Uzbek government uses Russian pressure as a great excuse, uh, I would say, to be, you know, heavy handed sometimes or to justify systemic problems such as energy um, shortage. But their main concern, as Timur also mentioned earlier, is internal. Um, and this is not just about Uzbekistan. The top priority, I would argue, in the region is ensuring that for the governments, for the leaderships, is ensuring the safety and security of the regime and the ruling elite, uh, which is, you know, which has strong links with Russia. This is why they don't allow political opposition, real political opposition, to have strong opponents means to be overthrown from power for them. I mean, that's the, that, that's how they see this. So I would say the domestic dissent is what they fear most, uh, despite the fact that they attribute uh, a lot of problems to the Russian pressure. Okay, thank you. Um, Johan, could you talk a little bit about the role of, of migrant laborers? We just heard that mentioned and, and how important that is in, in the Russian-Central Asian relationship. And then I noticed uh, in your article, too, that it, um, you'd mentioned uh, Russia's expansion of schooling program in Central Asia too, uh, trying to get more Russian language schools open in Central Asia wherever they can. So could you talk about the role of migrant laborers and, and uh, Russia's efforts to open new more Russian schools in Central Asia, please? Sure, thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, labor migrants, That uh, of course, they are an extremely vulnerable group, but also then, of course, 
very important for, for the home countries here. I mean, you only have to look at the statistics there with remittances corresponding to, you know, a third of Kyrgyzstan's and uh, almost a third of Kyrgyzstan's and Tajikistan's GDP and maybe 10% of Uzbekistan's because there's, even if Uzbekistan has the most uh, labor migrants, they, they have a stronger own economy. So it's a, the share is smaller then, but still, I mean, maybe four or five million people, that's, that's uh, a lot. And of course, then when the when the full scale invasion of Ukraine broke out and and these sanctions were imposed on the Russian economy, uh, the immediate focus uh, forecast was, of course, that that many of these Central Asian labor migrants would would have to return home, and then with all this risk of you know of increased uh, unemployment, declining remittances, and the risk of social unrest. Um, but then, but despite these growing challenges that they confront, of course, in Russia, and it was also the fact that the Russian economy has held up much better, actually, than expected, and uh, because of the sanctions um, and resisted them, uh, Central Asian workers have continued to to arrive in Russia, and uh, you can maybe also say that because of the war and the mobilization you have seen. Uh, Russia's own labor is shrinking quite dramatically, and that might even further reinforce the need for labor mi- uh, migrants to fill this uh, shortage. So, of course, this uh, continues to make this, the, the Central Asian states very vulnerable to Russian threats here all the time of maybe sending them home. Uh, but also, of course, from the laborers' perspective, they are, of course, in a very difficult situation, also being pressured threatened tricked tricked by 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 russian officials here to maybe to join the war or being promised citizenships or or other benefits things like that so so this is of course a very delicate issue um, when you think about it and of course maybe also this when it comes to trade maybe add also there you 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 see that of course this um, despite this um, you know we also thought that the the trade relations w- would suffer here between the Central Asian states and 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 Russia, but they have actually also been growing uh, since the full scale invasion. And of course, um, here maybe we should also address the, the the sanctions issue, which is becoming more and more a discussion here in in Europe, for instance, and Central Asia's role in in helping Russia to evade san- sanctions. And of course, we see on the statistics that that. Uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan particularly, there have been a sh- sharp increase here in, in exports to, to these countries from cars and car parts and to, you know, laundry machines, different household products and all that, that are then assumably, assumingly being, being re- re-exported to, to Russia. And this, of, of course, so, so um, this is a serious issue, of course, uh, but what I hear from from Europe in this sense, there, I mean, attempts to maybe single out these Central Asian countries, here, make, making them some kind of scapegoats here. Uh, when I would say that the, the even bigger problem, or at least the start, the place to to start at, w- would be for countries like you know Germany or Sweden, for that matter, to to get their own export control in order, because of course in in countries like this, Kyrgyzstan with a rather rough capitalist system and and problems with with corruption and and all that, of course, there will always be creative and and, uh, opportunistic um, businessmen or, you know, people in general taking advantage of these opportunities. So so I think that, but this is also 
factor that I think really is uh, for the governments here. This is something that we probably have to look closer at. Uh, this is putting them in an even tougher spot, I think. Uh, and depending on which step they take when it comes to you know this uh, circumventing of sanctions, they can be a trigger, a strong response from either Russia or, or the West. So yeah, and then of course this with the Russia's um, counter, in a way, uh, with the promoting uh, Russia, Russian schools and 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 um, you know the the, the in Central Asia. The, I mean, you can say that, as I mentioned, of course, R- Russia. I would say that there are two main factors that I can look at really when Russia here from a more you know soft power point of view if you look from this more cultural perspective of course that, that can be used to, to continue to control these countries and of course the Russian media is, is the main one I would say to tool here for, for shaping public opinion in, in Central Asia and they are of course very effective here in hammering on hammering in different messages here of uh, you know, portraying the West as evil and uh, Ukraine as a Nazi state, and and also, but also to try to portray these countries as as uh, you know extensions of the Russian world that they share some values and norms here with them. Uh, and the other aspect is, of course, and that's connected to that, of course, is is the lingering role here still of, of the Russian language, uh, which which in, in, uh, underpins the influence here. And um, of course, uh, Russia views any attempt to how to say, downgrade the, the Russian language as an unfriendly act. And you see this in this context, Satrudnichestva uh, uh, is the main organization here to fund, um, you know, Russian cultural influence abroad, and especially then fund modern Russian schools and other institutions that, to ensure that you, the, the Russian culture maintain it, its presence here. And um, yeah, and one aspect that was communicated quite recently was that in Kyrgyzstan, was announced here that that new uh, modern top-notch Russian language schools w- will be financed here by, by Russia in all of the the seven regions of the country, but also in the, in the uh, major cities here, Bishkek and and Osh. So so this is of course you you see this through this soft power also um, uh, tools that that they try to to uh, in a way uh, arrest this development and ensure that you know the continued uh, importance here of, of russian culture and language um, in this sense okay great uh, we're coming close to the end and in fact we've probably already gone long but i want to give everyone a chance if you could in two minutes uh tell me what, what, what do you think the audience uh, people listening need to know about how russia's relationship with central asia has changed since the war in ukraine started uh since russia launched its full-scale war on ukraine uh, in february late february 2022 johan i'll go to you first two minutes what's what are the big change people need to know what are they what's what's happening there maybe not so much uh, change as a message i would say that uh, i mean that these countries are you know that's been clear that they are no satellites to, to Russia. They are seeking their own agency here. Um, I mean, among all these states, we have seen a lot of activity when it comes to new d- diplomatic security policy, new economic initiatives aimed at really balancing this dependence on Russia uh, for the purpose of protecting their own interests here. And I think that none of this would have been possible actually without 
the previous attempts also, the, the conscious one, ones here to actually pursue this so-called multi-vector foreign policy, which has in this sense provided a, a useful base here. This is not something that has emerged with this war that they try to, they have something to build on here. And I mean, already in 1997, uh, Tokayev back then published a book where he actually laid out this concept of what he called a positive balance, also balancing these close relations with Russia by building close relations with, with China, as well as the US and, and Europe. Now we see, we have heard before also here, we see the Gulf countries are also part of this. Uh, Turkey, of course, expanding its influence even here, apart from not to speak of South Caucasus. Uh, so you see this... Um, that they have they, they have managed to still lay the foundation here for 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 themselves to 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 actually um, have some own room for for action here in in a very difficult geopolitical uh, situation so so i think that uh, would definitely not have been possible if if they were russian satellites as if you, as you often hear or russia's backyard just as you often hear in, in western media then thanks Okay, great. Thank you. Now, Bahar, what's changed in the last in about nearly two years in Russian-Central Asian relations? You know, Bruce, ironically, because of the war in Ukraine, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Central Asian states um, seem more confident, <laughs> are more assertive, and are more united than ever. So that is, I would argue, the, the, the sort of the, the, the main outcome uh, so far, the impact, the results so far. These countries want to be seen as normal states dealing with normal challenges. And, you know, they resent being featured as a struggling former Soviet country, as a region stuck between major powers. But on the other hand, to their own people, these leaders, these governments describe their systems and challenges as exceptional, you know, requiring extraordinary policies and steps that actually serve to defend their autocratic and nepotistic actions, as we see, you know, today, type control over citizens and media, uh, for example. But over the last year or so, I've also been hearing from Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, and Uzbek that they deserve uh, a certain kind of appreciation for being a security link uh, that they are regionally. They, they see themselves as such. You know, these voices also say that the region is managing the fallout from the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan is dealing with a lot of issues, international issues, and, and they have been absorb, absorbing Russians fleeing the conscription. And so, you know, they, they feel like they deserve some credit for that. Uh, as we know, they have sought the American and the European support to sort of like stymie, you know, regional issues. Uh, but they do want to be respected as independent nations and they don't want to be treated as um, or seen as small countries under the Russian shadow or, you know, governments dreading angry Russia, even though privately sometimes we hear them saying that to the Americans and the Europeans, you know. They, again, in, 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 in these interactions, they use Russian pressure as a way to get to their goals a lot. Great, thank you. And that brings us to you, Tamur. What's the big change in the last 22 months in Russian Central Asian ties? I would say, for me, what I see have changed in the relationship between Russia and Central Asia is the way Russia looks at Central Asia. I mean, of course, it didn't change 
dramatically, especially when we speak about the Russian leadership. But when we speak about the society, I think many people uh, for the first time have visited Central Asia. Many people for the first time have have seen with their own eyes what Central Asia is. And that is not something that Uh, reminds um, you know uh, far countries like Afghanistan, but it's um, you know there um, the the cities of Central Asia are m- much more uh, similar in a way to uh, the cities of uh, of of Russia. The post Soviet um, heritage is, is still there, although uh, Central Asia is um, uh, very different. So I think this has changed, and also the way the leadership looks at um, Central Asia has changed previously. Um, I think the Kremlin would rather see Central Asia as a source of uh, constant problems. And uh, the Kremlin was um, not initiating any, um, you know, cooperation mechanisms with the Central Asian countries, but would rather always wait for the initiative come from Central Asia. But now I think it turned upside down i think russia needs central asia and and that is why russian you know president and the the members of russian uh, security council are um, so much focused on russia's presence in central asia and from central asia russia looks as a country that uh, you know brings a lot of problems to uh, the region and to the region's relationship with uh, other countries around the world so now central asia every time the president of a central asia country goes to russia has has to think whether or not it will be perceived as a support of russia's aggression against ukraine and whether or not it will somehow uh, later echo as a secondary sanctions for their country, they have to be very careful when they deal with Russia, which was not something that countries would have dealt before the war. So I think, yeah, what what's changed is the fact that Russia has become uncomfortable partner, but the partner that is at the same time needed for uh, having this balance between many different players. Okay, great. Well, thank you. We have come to the end of our show. So thank you, Tamur, Johan, and Nabahar. And a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much. And we'll be back next year, actually. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.